According to the military, it's all going great guns in the fight against ISIS. So there's a real momentum now. The caliphate that they proclaimed has now shrunk by around 40%. Our job is to provide combat sorties to that effort, primarily close air support. Up to this point, the airstrikes have been very successful. So why is the war still going on? It's nearly five years since President Obama told President Assad to step aside as Syria's leader. So why hasn't America forced him out and why is the war still raging? The Defence Secretary Michael Fallon has been visiting the British operation against ISIS in Cyprus. He told BFBS Assad must go. The civil war continues there and it won't end until Assad gives up and and accepts that he can't be part of Syria's uh, future. And we continue to work at the political settlement that is needed in Syria. At the same time, we are deploying our our aircraft, our strike aircraft and our reconnaissance to help deal with uh, the dash in the areas in and around Raqqa. And he believes the US-led coalition is making progress. We've seen a whole series of cities now being liberated along the uh, Euphrates and further north up the Tigris. And uh, we see more and more uh, uh, fighting from the Syrian moderate opposition against um, Daesh in northern Syria. So there's a real momentum now. The caliphate that they proclaimed has now shrunk by around 40%. Meanwhile, U.S. Navy operations against Islamic State are being launched from the aircraft carrier, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, in the Arabian Gulf. BFBS reporter Simon Newton is the first British broadcast journalist to visit the carrier since the start of so-called Operation Inherent Resolve. There's uh, 19 nations involved right now in the coalition in the fight against ISIL. Captain Paul Spadero is a former Top Gun instructor and the man in charge of the Eisenhower. Uh, Our job is to provide combat sorties to that effort, primarily close air support. Up to this point, the airstrikes have been very successful. We're here to see firsthand America's contribution to the war on ISIS. On the deck, F-18s laden with bombs are catapulted off the runway and out to sea many headed for Iraq and Syria. Commander Flash Coulter is one of the mini-bosses running air operations from high above the deck. We usually run about uh, eight or nine cycles a day, and that can tally up to as many as 100, 125 sorties. There's seven squadrons on board, 66 aircraft, including 53 F-18s. Making it all work are teams of specialists, each identified by different coloured shirts. Stephen Vaser is a senior aircraft handler. And the amount of personnel that per, that can get just one aircraft off the deck is absolutely amazing. That aircraft is touched by at least 15 different people before it actually reaches its mission. The U.S. Navy has launched over 4,000 airstrikes since operations began in 2014. Commanding the carrier strike group is Rear Admiral Jesse Wilson. Our main job is is to ensure that our partners in this region and our coalition partners know the U.S. commitment to this effort, that we will be here in this region and we will have their backs. The Eisenhower is expected to be in the Gulf until the end of the year, this carrier delivering the U.S. punch to Operation Inherent Resolve. Simon Newton, BFBS, aboard the Dwight D. Eisenhower. 
So, with all this military might being thrown at the problem, why is there still no solution in Syria? Well, joining us on SITREP today is Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, and his latest book is Irregular Wars, ISIS and the New Threat from the Margins. He joins me along with BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Professor Rogers, good to speak to you today. Missiles, drones, laser bombs, satellite intelligence, allies from all over the world, and still the war goes on. If we can't fix it with this how can we very difficult to say we're not going to fix it this way there isn't a direct military solution to this problem and the idea that we are winning is palpable nonsense you remember what three or four years ago david cameron saw the largest british troops out of afghanistan and said mission accomplished now we have more troops american and british going back in I think we really have to get real that we've had 15 years of major problems ever since 9-11 and we're still not on top of it. So I think we have many problems ahead and in the case Mm. of ISIS in particular, it has already transformed itself. Basically, it recognises it was going to come under attack and started two years ago developing the kinds of people that could stage attacks abroad. And I think we're now starting to see it actually changing ahead of the attacks that it's receiving. The idea that it is finished, I'm afraid, is nonsense. Professor Rogers, I mean, you, you say that's palpable nonsense. Yeah. Why do you think they are saying these positive things if what you say is true? Well, for heaven's sake, I mean, three months after 9-11, we were told the Taliban had gone and al-Qaeda was a busted flush. Three weeks after Saddam Hussein was felled, we have the mission accomplished speech. Basically, I think people have to say this almost to keep their own morale up. But, the, you know, the reality is so different. We were told that when Os- Osama bin Laden was killed, what, uh, five years ago, that would be the end of the movement. Instead, it transformed itself into ISIS. We just have to stand back from this and be careful about assuming that we're having real success. There have been changes. ISIS is under very heavy pressure. The Pentagon reckons it's lost probably 30,000 supporters to the airstrikes in the last two years. Yet it is far from finished in that way, and it is already spreading. And in fact, I think it was the um, CNC of US Pacific Command was saying recently, his worries are the way it's spreading in Bangladesh and uh, across Southeast Asia. Yes. You, you say in your book, you're talking about the new threat from the margins. What do you mean by the margins, and what is the threat? Well, the threat, this is longer term. What I'm saying is that there are world trends, mainly wider and wider economic divisions, and the onset of climate change, which are going to make for many, many millions of people who are resentful and angry on the relative margins. And some of them will take refuge in radical movements which may have very little, if anything, to do with Islam. I actually think one of the most significant movements to watch, even though it hardly ever gets reported, is actually the neo-Maoist Naxalite rebellion in India which has caused the New Delhi government no end of problems over the last 10 years and is very much a revolt from the margins. So you're arguing that that we are perhaps focusing generally on on the immediate issue at hand without a global long-term perspective on the security issues? Yes. Now, it's fair enough because obviously ISIS is a major problem, but I think it should be seen as a proto-conflict for the kinds of conflicts we're going to get into the future if we're not able to address the underlying reasons why these become problems. And basically, we have to have quite an economic transformation to make for a fairer world and one which is also ultra-low carbon. That's one heck of a change, but we have maybe 10 or 15 years to make progress on it. But if we don't, then I'm afraid in the longer term, ISIS mm. in 30 years' time will have been seen to be a minor problem. Christopher Lee, a fairer world which is ultra-low carbon. Is that the solution? Do you know, if you go back, um, what, 46, George Cannon? Mm. Uh, um George Kennan, an American, 
said, how do you deal with the Cold War, the Soviet Union? And the answer was containment. And ever since that point, almost until this decade, uh, Western minds, Western military minds, Western political minds have said, well, we'll contain the problem. And this lidism, uh, which well, you refer to, Paul, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, and yeah. The... It is the containing of the problem. What we're talking about here is something quite different now. I don't believe uh, that what we see now, which we, we, we described in so many different ways, or oh, the Cold War's over, we're going into a different type of warfare, etc. Um, and I don't believe that we're actually A-geared, that the military mind and the cleverness within our academic societies, both military and, 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 and civilian, I don't think they know enough. I don't think they know enough. I don't think they can talk to each other. If you take a soldier and he says, well, I understand attritional warfare, etc., is a different sort of thing, and he goes along and he starts to talk to his minister, even his permanent secretary about this, the eyes really do glaze over. We do not internationally have an, have an idea how to do this very, very difficult thing. You don't simply go to Raqqa and say, look, we've got to beat up on ISIS. You have to say, the world is extraordinarily angry. We have, Paul has just talked about India, the state of India at the moment, uh, which has been going on for 20 years, but it's never reported. We don't understand how to, un to, how to, how to counter global yeah. warfare, which we can't sometimes even pin down as warfare. Paul, one of the things that, that you are critical of is resorting to the military might as, as the last resort when all else fails. But when you do have a pressing urgency, an imminent attack, it, it's natural to want to defend yourself, isn't it? I think absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm not a pacifist myself. Uh, I, I think there are very few just wars, but I'm not a pacifist. But, you know, if you go back to 9-11, it was natural and politically inevitable that the United States would respond basically by going to war with, with al-Qaeda and its Taliban hosts. But there were people arguing at the time that this should have been seen as an appalling mass criminality attack and should have been approached through other legal channels. Now, people poo-pooed that at the time. It was a non-starter. I talk at defence colleges quite regularly, and if I say that now, people actually will sort of semi-nod agreement, and maybe we did it the wrong way, because in one sense, the likes of al-Qaeda and ISIS want to be attacked. They want war. That is what they're about. And if we give them that, in a way, we're actually falling into a trap. And they're in it, well, the difficult thing is they're actually in it for eternity. They're eschatological. And that makes it very difficult to defeat them in the conventional sense. Mm. Christopher? I was at a defence college recently, and there were some guys there. It was, it, was, it was army. And they say, what happens? OK, you're in a job for two and a half years or, or, or whatever. And then you move on and you're thinking in a different way. And somehow there's got to be a bigger think if you like, going about how to, how to handle this sort of thing. But what happens is this. You get, certainly in, in senior commands, they see what they're doing as part of their career structure, a part of where the army is, what the politics are, what, what the economics are of their politics, military politics at the moment. And therefore, and, and then you sort of start trying to put this into an interna international concept. It may be that we are unable to counter this as a global threat uh, because we can't even define 
what the threat is. We do not have the resources. You started off by saying, look, we've got all the intelligence in the world, all the equipment in the world, etc. It's a different sort of war. We're built still. Mm. Mentality, we're still built for different wars. Professor Paul Rogers, you say we've only got a couple of decades to sort this out. How did you work that one out? Well, essentially, it's down very much to the impact of climate change. That changes everything. As the climate really disrupts, that makes it even worse, the problems we have with an unequal society. And that, I think, is the game-changer. Limits to growth, what, 50-so years ago, predicted it will be the 2020s that will be the really problematic decade. And I think that is probably the case, 2020s and 2030s. There is time, but it does represent huge changes in our thinking, as Chris has said. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, calls for the Royal Navy to help the UK Border Force patrol our seas. Trouble is, not enough ships. And forget Rio, the Russians hope to win medals by racing tanks in their own backyard. This week, the United States carried out airstrikes against ISIS in Libya. The Pentagon said the attack on the port city of Sirte was the start of a sustained offences against the military group outside Iraq and Syria. The airstrikes were requested by the UN-backed unity government, which nominated the targets. A little earlier, I spoke to Mary Fitzgerald, a journalist and researcher specialising in Libya. I asked her why the US got involved now. The airstrikes by the U.S. this week uh, basically come on the heels of an operation which was launched in May, and a Libyan operation uh, comprised of forces that are loosely affiliated with that unity government that's taking shape in, in Tripoli. And despite the claims by commanders of that operation back in May that this uh, battle would only take a, a few weeks, um, here we are a few months on now, and, and there is a sense really that the battle has has slowed in cert. Uh, According to my sources, it appears that um, ISIS fighters are now holed up in a part of central Tripoli. It's estimated that there are a few hundred of them. But clearly, they see this as their last stand. CERT was... Um, it's uh, was is ISIS's stronghold in, in, in Libya and losing CERT would be a, a, a huge defeat, not just strategically, but also symbolically. Um, so we see the, the airstrikes happening at a time when the battle had slowed considerably. And clearly, this is an effort to try and bolster those Libyan forces on the ground. Those forces have also taken uh, quite a hit in terms of casualties since the beginning of the operation in May. Almost 400 have been killed, I believe a couple of thousand injured. So there is a sense that really the forces on the ground needed a a little bit of an extra boost uh, from the air. Do you think that the strategy of targeting ISIS strongholds before or when they are established is the right one? Will it work? Well, there are concerns in Libya right now about what may happen if uh, if uh, the the operation succeeds, the operation a combination, as I mentioned, of, of ground and, and air uh, attacks, if it succeeds in dislodging ISIS from CERT completely. Because what the concern is now is basically we may face a situation where ISIS is essentially um, dispersed out of, of CERT, dispersed particularly towards the south, but other uh, parts of the country as well, where it could become more of a, an insurgency um, and uh, with the ability to carry out attacks in, in various cities and towns. We know, for example, um, that there is an ISIS presence in Tripoli. There are cells operating in the city. When I was in Tripoli in, in May, I spoke to some of the local militias that have been tracking these uh, cells and arresting several people. There is a concern in Tripoli that Tripoli could experience some kind of blowback as a result of this assert operation. 
So long term, I think ISIS will be a reality in, in Libya on the ground, but it will not have the, the, the strength and scale of presence that it had before that it enabled it to propagandize about its presence in, in Libya. About a year ago, there was heavy propaganda coming from ISIS trying to portray Libya as the third theater in its so-called caliphate, trying to get foreign fighters to flock to Libya, boasting about the fact that they control territory inside Libya. Now, if they are dislodged from CERT, that will no longer be the case. So it will be a, a real uh, symbolic defeat for them. Yes, yeah, symbolic, but you also talk about the destabilizing effect that dispersing ISIS could have. But what also about the effect of the US being seen more broadly to, to back the UN-backed unity government, which is not recognized in the whole country? Indeed, and you know, I always argue that actually ISIS is a symptom and uh, not a cause of uh, Libya's instability. Libya's instability essentially stems um, from a political power struggle that has been ongoing since 2014 that has resulted in, in what could be considered a civil war. And in terms of these U.S. Uh, airstrikes, they have been carried out. It could be seen as, as assisting those um, forces on one side of the current uh, political power struggle because there are factions, particularly in eastern Libya, who oppose that UN-backed unity government. They've made no secret of that. Some of those factions are themselves um, fighting ISIS in different parts of, of eastern Libya. The noises we've heard from those factions in eastern Libya in recent days, they have uh, talked about violation of sovereignty of Libya, but there's also been criticism coming from um, Tripoli in that uh, the hardliners around uh, Libya's controversial Mufti, a religious uh, leader, have also been quite critical of the U.S. airstrikes and have been questioning what kind of agendas may be behind it. But it's, also, it's important to note here that these are not the first U.S. airstrikes on Libya over the last year, and they're not the first U.S. airstrikes against ISIS in Libya. The U.S. has acknowledged that it carried out four sets of airstrikes over the past year. Uh, the other two against ISIS were against um, ISIS in, uh, around the eastern town of Derna, but also around the western town of Sabrata. Those airstrikes, there was minimal negative reaction, a little a bit of criticism from that eastern a government I mentioned earlier, which um, is is quite critical of the Western support for uh, Western power support for the unity government. But on the on, on the level of the general public in Libya, there was uh, very little backlash, and that's interesting in that that tells us that um, Libyans, for the most part, perceive ISIS in Libya as a foreign-led and predominantly foreign in in terms of its rank and file movement. It sees it, it sees it as an alien presence. Um, and uh, and basically support efforts to, to uproot it. That was journalist Mary Fitzgerald speaking to me a little earlier. Well, with me today is Professor Paul Rogers and BFPS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Professor Rogers, how much does what happens in Libya matter to the region as a whole? It's not hugely important. It's more symbolically important. I think what's most interesting about Mary Fitzgerald's report is the indication that, in a sense, ISIS recognises the problems it is now facing there and is basically not so much going to ground as going to underground and essentially it's going to maintain a presence but of a different sort. If, though, it can actually bring more Libyans to support it, then it may have more success. But that is the dominant thing, and so far it has not been successful at that. Mm. Christopher Lee, a Pentagon spokesman said US forces are not participating on the ground in the current fight in CERT, but did not say that US ground forces have left Libya entirely. 
And British and British ground forces, special forces. I mean, what they're doing uh, have two roles. One is to advise local forces what they can do, what they can't do, what equipment's going in there, how to use it, how to train it, whatever. But the most major part of it is adding to the technical intelligence picture. You know, begin by beach surveys, just in case you had to put inland forces. How would you get in? How would it be imposed? What are the structures and everything? And then the analysis of different government and opposition forces, the numbers, the command system, the personalities, uh, target identification, an absolutely essential role to do it quietly while this type of fighting that's going on at the moment may not be the type of fighting that goes on later. Don't forget you can subscribe to SITREP as a podcast so you can take uh, take us with you and listen wherever you are. Use a podcast app on your smartphone and search for BFBS SITREP. Now, MPs have warned Britain's border force has a worrying, worryingly low number of boats to patrol the coastline. Just three out of five cutters are currently patrolling more than 7,000 miles of shoreline. Keith Vaz from the Commons Home Affairs Committee wants Royal Navy vessels to be made available to plug any gaps. We need to use the vessels that we have, but we also need the Royal Navy to be able to deploy their vessels when necessary to assist us in dealing with these criminal gangs. So, Christopher, the Royal Navy coming to the rescue. Swap me. I mean, I wonder what he reads. Um, We've got one frigate at the moment. Uh, The Royal Navy has one frigate at the moment protecting 7,723 miles of coastline. Now, that's misleading, of course. Um, The Navy doesn't have those sort of ships available at the time. I mean, the Navy's got... is actually in quite a good nick. But when you see four, maybe five, Type 45 destroyers parked in Portsmouth last weekend simply because the engines don't work or the, or, the, or the generators don't work you see the problem. Mm. But it's not it's the type of vessels you want. And the best type of vessels are the ones that the, the border agencies got are the Corvettes and what they really need is probably six operational and then you say where would you put them? You put them on in the, in the channel. You probably put them in the eastern channel. So it's not such a huge coastline to, to to monitor but the other thing you've got to start doing you've got to put in the volu- you've got to put border agency lookouts for example on the cross channel ferries mm. you've got to have people in the airplanes that fly cross channel the small ones that fly say from lid across uh, across to france that is the scale of the inspection uh, but uh, in, but the whole thing starts actually in france not in the united kingdom yeah uh, P- professor paul rogers what would you make of this story knocking around this week french sea marshals on cross channel ferries uh, can't get on the ships though till they're in french waters no i think that that is one of the anomalies about the whole thing i think you also have the problem as christopher was saying about the the capability of of royal navy ships i mean we do have the so-called river class patrol vessels and others but i think one of those is permanently down at the falcons uh, and i think another when last heard was visiting the baltic somewhere so we don't seem to have, uh, sort of address the issue at roots uh, but of course this is part of the longer term problem of the pressures of migration which I think are going to get worse and will demonstrate it by these weird stories that you're getting about it's also, so marshals. It's also a problem getting getting ships companies, crews I mean there's yes, one parked yeah. in Ramsgate, it's been there for weeks because they can't get enough hands to actually drive it BFBS 
Uh, before we go, some other stories around this week. Uh, North Korea has carried out another missile test. Is it significant, Paul Rogers? It is in a way because this one went pretty close to the Japanese mainland. In fact, it probably landed within the Japanese economic zone. The North Koreans are getting very uppity because of the decision to put a, a further missile defence system into South Korea. They're also privately worried about the relative improvement in political relations between Japan and South Korea. Because historically they've been really at a, at a low ebb for many, many years. Meanwhile, the Chinese are worried about the expansion of the area defence system in South Korea. But of course, from the Japanese and South Korean perspective, it's the North Koreans they are worried about. It's a further upping of the ante, I'm afraid, and one suspects that more is possible. The real risk, of course, is when you get high levels of tension, something untoward happens as an accident or an incident or a maverick, you know, the old uh, acronym AIM, AIM. Mm. And that is really where I think people start to get worried. Christopher? I think there's a, there's, there's another side of this, and, and that is that we have to accept where North Korea is. It doesn't matter if things are working or if they're not working or whatever. It has entered an age where um, the, the leader would say, what I really need is so-called respect. I want to be treated like a nuclear state. I mean, nobody took much notice of Pakistan, for example, until they actually got nuclear weapons. And there's an element of that. And the other thing is to look across the seas. Look what's happening at the moment in, in Japan. Japan is about to appoint its first first pro-nuclear weapons defence minister and there could be quite a movement to change the constitutional state mm. of, uh, uh, of Japan and if necessary to start thinking about uh, becoming a nuclear Paul, power Paul state. you better get working on that next book. I'm afraid so, it's a horrible <laughs> thought isn't it? This yes. is why he's always depressed I tell you. <laughs> no I'm not, no, I'm not. <laughs> Okay um, let's talk about Belize uh, briefly. Hurricane Earl uh, hit land and obviously there's the British military presence there Christopher. Yeah, uh, Belize is, 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 is quite a place at the moment. It's one of the big training grounds. And it might not have been because when uh, some years ago when there was a transition in the whole sort of administration of Belize, we could have been asked to go, but we weren't. Um, most importantly, I think, is the, uh, is the NCO training in very harsh circumstances. Why do you think it's the most important? Um, because it, it, it does two things. It trains you like you can be trained in no other place on Earth. The British can just go in and set up their own training system uh, for platoon commanders, for example, mm. in the most terrible circumstances. I mean, awful, awful conditions, I mean, the most severe conditions. It does two things. One, it says to you, you can go anywhere in the world, you, you might be deployed into Southeast Asia or whatever, you might have to use this, mm. or in Africa. Uh, but the other thing is, it produces the most amazing camaraderie at the end of it. It produces something in these platoon commanders that in no other place would you have it. I did and, it. And do you know what the good news is? The winds of no, no, no. From the end of next week, they can share. I can share with you that BFBS will be back on air in Belize for people out there. That's right. And the week after that, you'll be hearing about it on SITREP. <laughs> <laughs> um, Christopher, the Olympics start in Rio on Friday. Well, tomorrow, I should say. Um, actually, Paul, it did occur to me today those protests that are happening in Rio sort of feeds into your thought about poverty and the, the does, divide yes. between the rich and the poor. Yes. Yeah, it, it does. And I mean, there are very big divisions within Brazilian society. By and large, it will hold together for the Olympic period because people in Rio de Janeiro 
uh, are for the majority part very keen on the huge prestige it will bring. But in the longer term, uh, Brazil is an example of a country like uh, India and several others where, you know, there's been incredible economic growth, but it has been extremely divisive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a long-term problem, which I think is going to cause a lot of instability. Just pr- briefly a footnote, Christopher, that Russia's holding its own military games. Yeah, until August the 13th, you've got uh, 3,000 people have turned up for this from 19 different countries. You've got tanks firing, uh, um, sharpshooting, aerobatics, etc. It is a sort of military competition. Everybody gets medals. I tell you the most extraordinary thing about it. When I first saw the handout about this, and it was out, it was was a tremendous thing to be there, and President Putin's going to be there. Paul Rogers, um, just briefly before we wind up this week, I think Christopher had a a question, uh, having read your book. I tell you, uh, Paul, 30 years... How long have you been there? Uh, nearly 40, I'm afraid. Nearly yes. 40, yes, doesn't show. Um, and it's a sense that, what has it done to you? Well, for a start, you know, uh, in the 1980s, we were worried about central nuclear war, and we got out of that. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, the position now compared with 20 years ago, the 1990s, there was actually more war and conflict then than there is now. Um, personally, we we live on a small holding. I'm a keen bell ringer. I do a lot of hill walking. <laughs> it's so, not the answer, is it, then? <laughs> well, that, that's a help. But, I mean, in this work, you have three choices. You're either suicidal, alcoholic, or optimistic. And I don't drink very much, and I'm not suicidal. Mm. I mean, I, it's hard not to be a little bit pessimistic when you see the kind of doomsday scenarios. Yes, but let, let me give you one example. 25 miles from where I live, we have the village of Towton. That was a scene of the Battle of Towton, Palm Sunday, 1461, the worst battle of the Wars of the Roses. 28,000 men died in one place on one day when the population of the entire country was less than 3 million. Uh, you know, we're past those times and I think you can always look to the future. The majority of the world is in a state of reasonable peace, and we should never forget that. Professor Paul Rogers, thank you very much, and his book, Irregular War, ISIS and the New Threat from the Margins, is out now. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast. Just search for us on your podcast app. We're back same time next week from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Man held over London knife attack.